If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, uh, both here and online, or maybe you have that Ruth journal um, that we've handed out to a number of you, um, you can open it up. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 3, so we've got a lot to get through here. Let me just remind you that in this season, the, um, one of our big goals is that you would not just read the book of Ruth, um, we would not just read or talk about the book of Ruth, that we would study it um, and that we would apply it to our lives. Um, and so um, whether you're watching online, you can find this online or here, maybe it was on your seat or on the table, is our family and personal discipleship cards. Um, so on one side, there's something for your family, something for you to walk through with your children throughout the week um, and take this passage we're looking at deeper. Um, and then on the other side, there's a personal discipleship, and there's three different opportunities you can um, have to study this passage deeper um, so we can get to know better. This incredible story of the book of Ruth, it is absolutely incredible. I love this book. Give me an amen or a hand raise or two hands raised or thumbs up or something spiritual if you are enjoying the book of Ruth. Thank you. My wife was the most excited about that. I appreciate that. That is a good helper there. Um, so Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to be at. But I want to start in the Gospels. I want to start with a very short story. And I want to ask you a question that Jesus asks some particular person. So in Mark chapter 10, there's this passage where there's this man who is blind. Um, his name is Blind Bartimaeus. And he hears that Jesus is coming through town. And so as Jesus is coming through town, remember, he's blind. He can't see Jesus, but he's hearing the roar of the crowd. And so he realizes, okay, Jesus is coming. And so all of the sudden, this blind man starts shouting at the top of his lungs, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's shouting and shouting. And apparently maybe Jesus can't hear him because he's shouting all the more louder. And I don't know if you remember this story, but the people in the crowd turn to blind Bartimaeus. And do, they, do you remember what they say to blind Bartimaeus? They say, will you stop? Will you hush down? Will you stop yelling and screaming? But he can't stop. He keeps yelling for Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, hey, hey, I hear that man. Bring him to me. And so blind Bartimaeus is led to Jesus. Bartimaeus can't see him, but realizes he's in front of Jesus. And before Bartimaeus can speak, Jesus asks him a question. One question. And it's simply this. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? It's actually not the first time Jesus asks this question towards someone. You might even want to write it down. What do you want me to do for you? Now, really the way that Mark, the author of that gospel, writes it, it's almost as if Mark wants you and I as readers to hear Jesus asking you and I the same exact question. What do you want me to do for you? It's, it's a question that God asks Solomon. 
It's this question that Jesus asked blind Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? So I want us just to pause. I want us to actually take a very serious moment um, because this is where the direction of this passage we're going to look at is going. I want you to answer that question. If there's one thing that you desire God to do in your life, what would it be? Think about that and and write it down. Kids, um, some of you have a little pamphlet, or a packet. Maybe draw a picture. What what is it that you want God to do for you? And don't be general like, oh, just I would be blessed. Okay, good. Be specific and and don't be shallow like, well, you know, it'd be nice to have a good Christmas. In all seriousness, Maybe you're single and you're like, God, I'm going to be honest. I would really love 2021 to be the year where I meet a godly wife or a godly husband. Or maybe you're married and you're like, God, this is the year where we really long to have a child. We've been waiting. We've been praying. Or maybe you're in a job or don't have a job and you're going, God, if I'm honest, I really, really need a job or a better job because it's miserable Or maybe it's directly related to this year-long COVID-19 that we're walking through. And you're like, God, I want my kids to go back to school. God, I want to go to church and stand shoulder to shoulder with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I don't know. I'm just giving you some examples. I know what mine is. I was thinking about it this morning. But what is it? Write that down. And let me make two notes. The first one is this. I hope you wrote it down. Now start praying it each and every day. Start praying if you haven't already. The the second thing I want you to think about, and this is the direction this passage takes us in, is this thing that you want, this thing that you desire so badly, you don't have it right now, do you? Have you ever paused long enough to go, Why is that? Why is it, God, that I long for this? And especially stuff that's not selfish and it sounds like it would be something good and honoring to God. Have you ever just paused long enough to go, okay, God, why? Why haven't you said yes to this? And here's what we're going to see. And here's what this passage is about. And it's a major theme we see time and time and time again in Scripture. And it's this right here. And it's the text truth for today. It's this right here. There is God's purposes for your life. But then there is God's timing for your life. And those don't always happen to go hand in hand, do they? There is God's purpose for your life. And then there is God's timing for those purposes for your life. And what what is happening in between those two, God's purposes, God's timing, is more often than not what is happening in between those two is God is trying to do something in you to prepare you for what's ahead. You could point to Abraham. There's an example. You could point to Moses. There's an example. 
Ruth is going to give birth to a son, and then she's going to have a grandson, great-grandson, a guy by the name of David, King David. Do you remember how old David is when he gets anointed as king? He's a teenager, and he's anointed as king. Do you know how long it took for him to be actually become king? About 14, 15, 16 years. And the time between he was anointed as king, okay, this is God's purpose for his life, and him actually becoming king. God does a lot in his life, doesn't he? And we could just give example after example after example. The Apostle Paul is called this dramatic calling to go and share the gospel with the world. But then when we read Galatians, Paul reminds us, yeah, remember when I was called? There was actually like a two or plus year period where I went out into the desert by myself and God prepared me. And so that's what we see in this passage. We see a glimpse of God's purpose, but then it takes some time. And, and I want us to pause long enough to go, okay, we all just said something we long for God to do in our life, and it hasn't happened yet. And so maybe this passage can teach us what God is doing in between his purpose and his timing, and what we ought to do or not do in between his purpose and his timing. So let's open up our Bibles. Ruth chapter 2, verse 17. Remember, the story of Ruth begins very tragically. Um, We find that Naomi's husband dies, and then Naomi's two sons marry two women from Moab. Those two husbands die, and Ruth which was Naomi's daughter-in-law, is the only one that goes back with Naomi to Bethlehem. And so they're in Bethlehem. They are dirt, dirt, dirt poor. We're going to find out that they're so poor that Naomi owns a chunk of land and she's going to be forced to sell it because she needs the proceeds to put food on the table. And so what Ruth does in the meantime is she goes into a field to glean. Literally, she would go behind the harvesters and anything the harvesters didn't pick, she was legally able to pick it. But Ruth chapter 2 begins by saying, you know what, as luck would have it, as chance would have it, she shows up at this field and the field is Boaz's field. And as luck would have it, Boaz actually shows up on that work day and meets Ruth. And they have this connection. Ruth doesn't really know the significance of who Boaz is quite yet. All she knows is Boaz is extremely generous. How generous? Well, he lets her glean in the field, gives her far above and beyond what would be legally required of Boaz, a field owner, to give towards any foreigner or poor person. But let's look at this passage, chapter 2, verse 17. It says, so she gleaned in the field until evening... Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah, or an epha of barley, and she took it up and went into the city. So this was um, 22 liters of barley. This was a ridiculous amount of food that she brought home. This is going to feed them for more than just a day, probably a week or longer. This is a ton of food. And so, in fact, some commentators are like, we don't even know how she was able to carry it home. This is so much. 
And she took it up and she went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. This is so much. And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, there was this guy. There's this man. I met him. There's this man with whom I work today. And his name was Boaz. Everybody say Boaz. That's a good strong name. Did you know that when Solomon built his temple, now this was after the story of Ruth. In fact, Solomon is like the great, great, great grandson of Boaz. But when Solomon built his temple, one of the temple pillars was named Boaz. That's how strong this man is in character. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has said is the Hebrew word. And it's an important Hebrew word. It is the main word used to describe God's faithful, abounding love for us. It's actually a major theme in the book of Ruth. We ended on it last week. Where Boaz is modeling God's faithful love to Ruth. Oh man, whose has said has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, I want you to underline that whole entire statement. The man is a close relative of ours, one of our, not my, not your, but our redeemers. Now, we need to pause here for a moment because... um, This is a major turn in the story. We are told very specifically about the identity of who Boaz is. He's not just some godly man. He is what you might want to write a kinsman redeemer. Not just redeemer. Maybe you have a different Bible translation than me. I think the NIV puts it kinsman redeemer. Kinsman literally means relative redeemer. Now why is that important? Well, according to the law in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, but, um, but specifically in Leviticus, what would happen is if you were a widow, or let's just say you were a poor person, you didn't even have to be a widow, let's just say you were an Israelite and you became poor, And you got to the point where you had to sell your inheritance that God had given them in the promised land. So everyone had their own land. If you became poor enough where you had to sell your land, and that's going to be what Naomi has to do because she's so poor. What would happen is instead of Joe somebody coming along and buying your field and making a profit, what would happen is you would have a brother or maybe you would have a cousin Or maybe you would have an uncle and it was literally their job to step in and say, I will redeem it. I will pay for it. That's my niece or that's my cousin, Naomi. I'm related to her husband. And the law says, I am obligated if I have the means to do so. I am obligated to redeem that, to pay 
Naomi for that. Or if she was going to go into debt, he would pay for it and give it back to her. So this is in a day in which there was no life insurance. There was no retirement. And so you literally leaned on your relatives to have your back economically. And so Naomi realizes, Ruth, you didn't just go to some godly man's field. You went to one of the men who is meant to be our redeemer, who's supposed to have our back. Now, one of the things that a redeemer might do is that if there was a widow, a redeemer might come. Now, you can read about this in the book of Deuteronomy. It was specifically the duty of a brother. So... The brother of the dead husband was supposed to come and marry Naomi or marry Ruth. Now, Boaz is not the brother of Naomi or not the brother of Ruth, but he is close enough akin to where he might follow that statue. And that's, a, that's pretty big, right? I mean, just think about that. That's weird in our culture. Those of you who are men in here and you have a brother and your brother dies, and if you're not married, you are supposed to go and marry your brother's wife. That's just, I mean, I can't help but just go, that's a little bit weird. But again, it was God's way of providing for the people. And so Naomi says, he's our kinsman redeemer. This is not just any guy. And this is where we should pause here and go, this story is meant to foreshadow you and I, a guy named Jesus. Because that's who Jesus is for us. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament is spoken of over and over again as our Redeemer. He has come and he has redeemed us from the debt of sin that we owe. He's paid for that and then he has brought us into his family. And so... What we see here is not just Boaz is this redeemer, but what you and I are supposed to see on the other side of the cross is this story is meant to foreshadow Jesus, our redeemer. That's the kind of man Boaz is. And so Naomi realizes, wow, okay, he's one of our redeemers. Maybe he might marry Ruth, everybody, everybody do this. Like you're scheming here. You're scheming. Maybe you don't do that while you scheme. Maybe you're, maybe you're one of these. I don't know what the official sign of scheming is. That's what's going on, though, for Ruth. She's going, oh, hmm, yeah, hmm, Boaz, Ruth. How many of you, you know people like this? They are schemers, and they, they don't need Match.com. They are Match.com. Some of you, uh, you, you have one of these in your life right now. I don't know. My mom was one of these. She was scheming, scheming, one of these, and I'm grateful because her scheming led to me marrying Melissa, though I can't give her too much credit. Um, it was definitely God. So anyways, scheming's going on. Let's move on. Let's move on. 
So she realizes, oh, he's one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young women until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter. Ooh, it is good. I'm scheming. It is good for you to spend some time at Boaz's field here. It is, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So it was actually quite dangerous for her to be in these different fields. She's like, oh, it's good. You've met a godly man. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning, now listen to this, until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. So underline that right there, the end of the barley and wheat harvest. That is a time stamp. So this is a six to seven week period that has taken place. Um, chapter two begins with her going in to the barley harvest, and it's going to last all the way to the wheat harvest. This is April all the way till um, May, June time here. Now, here's what the author wants us to see. It is the end of the barley harvest. She is in the fields. Boaz is around. Naomi is going like this and realizing, "Uh uh-oh, pretty soon Ruth is going to come home and then Boaz is going to go to his next business project and they might not see each other for like another six, eight months. We need... It's one of those things where she realizes, okay, God is at work here. Awesome. He's one of our redeemers. But then she's like, but God is running out of time. You ever thought that before? Okay, God. I see what you're doing here, but it's the end of the barley harvest, and I think it's time for you to get moving. It's time for you to get working. Every, any of you ever thought that before? Okay? You all have masks on, so it's hard. Just give me a good nod. You can say amen. I'm not afraid of that. So here's what happens. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should not I seek rest for you? Do you hear that? My daughter, should I not, you know, shall I not play Match.com? Shall I not play Christian, play Christian Mingle? Shall, shall I not find rest for you? Now, that word rest, it does not mean a good night's rest. She's literally talking, shall I not find a husband for you? That it may be well with you. So, is not Boaz our relative... With whose young woman you were, see, he is winnowing barley tonight, and he's at the threshing floor. So there's a problem. The problem is this. We are running out of time. Here's the fact of the matter. Boaz is going to be at a particular place at a particular time, and here is the plan. Um, Literally, the commentary that I read titled it this way, Naomi's Scheme. Here is the scheme. Let's listen to the scheme. I want you to read it and think to yourself, hmm, is that something I would say to my daughter? Just think about that as you read this. So Naomi says, hey, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down on the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Now, okay, let's just rehearse this in your mind. 
and try and really get underneath this and ask the question, do you really think that this is advice God would give? So you're a father or maybe you're a mother and you have a daughter and there's a guy your daughter is interested in and, and, and you say to your daughter, sweetheart, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and clean yourself up, shower, bathe. I want you to put on your nicest perfume. Why don't you put on also a nice jacket and then you're going to go to the place that he is working. But wait till the sun sets and you're going to go there and he's going to eat and he's going to drink some wine and then he's going to lay down and he's and he's going to fall asleep and here's what I want you to do my sweet daughter my innocent daughter I want you to go to him I want you to take the blanket and lift it and move it we're supposed to go okay if you're like, well, what does that mean? That's the point of the author. He's actually using language that makes you go, uh, okay, all right. Because if you look up the Hebrew word for uncover and look up the other places that's used, it gets sketchy real quick. Or you look up the phrase lie down, go look up other places in scripture where that shows up and you'll go, oh, that's interesting. And we are literally supposed to read this and go, Naomi said, what? Like, is that could be misconstrued because she's saying to lie down and when he wakes up and notices that his feet have been uncovered Naomi says he'll just tell you what to do so one of the commentaries I read just simply puts it this way can this really be God's way of doing things or another uh, statement that is made is this Behind her risky strategy lies Naomi's old spiritual rashness. It is the residue of the spirit that earlier led to the immigration from the promised land to Moab. Now listen to this. If God does not do things speedily enough for us in our way, then we will take matters into our own hands. Ever, anyone ever done that? Lord, I see what you're doing. You're just not doing it fast enough. Ooh, I've got an idea. We devise our own ways of bringing to pass what God has promised to give us. We refuse to wait for him to bring his own purposes to fruition. Isn't this what Abraham did with Hagar? God said, I promise I will give you a son. And Abraham goes, well, I'm kind of getting old. And Sarah says, yeah, he's getting old. And Sarah says, here's my servant, Hagar. Have a baby with her. And I could just go on and on, right? I hope we don't do that. There is a way to get ahead of God. And we need to respect and understand that maybe the reason why he has not said yes is because he's actually saying, wait. Wait, I'm trying to do something in your life. I, I know that you're tired of waiting, but if you knew what I'm doing in you, if you knew what I'm doing on the side over here, we fail to realize that sometimes God is doing 10,000 more things, more brilliant, more amazing than we could ever realize. And it's all happening in that season of waiting. And so let's keep reading and see what happens. God can still use our rashness. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law 
had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, so he's, be careful here, he, he, he hasn't had too much to drink. He's had enough to drink to go, it's time for bed. And he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. So what would happen is they've harvested everything. All the workers are there. They would have had this, you know, concrete platform. Um, It would have been up on kind of a hilltop where the wind would blow. And it would help them thresh out all of their grain and barley and wheat. And so they'd have this pile this pile of profit, this pile of grain. And so what would happen is you'd sleep at the end of it so no one would come and rob you and take it. And so he lies down at the pile of his grain. There's probably other men there lying at the end of their pile of grain. And so he lies down and it says, Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, pause here. I'll keep it PG for obvious reasons. But this is a time in Israel's history, the time of the judges, where they were not walking with the Lord. They were disobeying the Lord. And so it was normal. You know how, like, they say that... Never mind, bad analogy. Basically, they have their pile of profit. It's nighttime, and some other women might show up. Let's just leave it there. And so he wakes up to maybe one of these women here, and he has no idea who it is. And it says, he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Now, underline this whole phrase. Spread your wings over your servant For you are a redeemer. That phrase should ring a bell. Spread your garment over me because we see it back in chapter 2 verse 12 where Boaz says to Ruth, May a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth is literally saying, hey, Boaz, remember that prayer of blessing you prayed over me? That God would find refuge for me? I want you to be the answer to that own prayer. I want you to care for me. Because remember, Boaz, I don't know if you know this, you're one of my redeemers. And what she's literally doing is she is proposing in marriage to him. And what a bold thing she does. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So there's a lot of important things happening in these couple verses here. The first is Boaz does not shoo her away. Boaz does not go, hey, this little thing that you're doing here, a little sketchy, not really the most godly thing that I've ever seen a woman do. He doesn't do that. I think he sees the heart in Ruth and he says, God bless you. You you are the kind of woman that probably a lot of young men would be attracted to. 
whether rich or poor. And you, you're will. It's almost as if you're, he's saying, you're willing to settle for me. I mean, he is moved by this offer. You're proposing to me? You're way out of my league. And I love what he does here. He says to her, you are, everyone knows that you are a worthy woman. Underline it, circle it, because I want you to study that phrase deeper this week. That phrase, worthy woman, it only shows up two other times in the whole entire Bible. And it shows up in Proverbs twice. The main place that it shows up is Proverbs 31.10, where there's this long passage. It's an acrostic, alphabetical acrostic passage where it talks about the the worthy woman, the worthy wife. In fact, there's been a lot written about how Ruth is supposed to be seen as this Proverbs 31 worthy woman. And that passage in Proverbs 31, it ends with, this is a woman who fears the Lord. That is the character of Ruth. That that she fears the Lord. Do you fear the Lord like this? And, and then there's Boaz. And there's been a lot written about how Ruth is seen as the Proverbs 31 woman. And that Boaz is actually supposed to be seen as the Proverbs 3 man. Do you remember Proverbs 3? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge God in all your ways. And he will make your path straight. And then there's that verse, I think it's in verse 7, where he says, He fears the Lord. This is Boaz. This Proverbs 3 man who, who's not willing to be as bold and as rash as Naomi. Because listen to what he says. He says, listen, listen. I would be honored, but there's actually another guy who's who's." Closer in relationship to you than, than me. He has first dibs, if you will, to, to marry you, to redeem Naomi's property. And, and what I love about Boaz is he is not, he's not willing to get ahead of God. He, in this moment, could be like, sweet, you're proposing to me. Yeah, I'll, I'll marry you. Let's do this right here, right now. But he doesn't. Listen to how this passage concludes. It says, remain tonight and in the morning it will, if he will redeem you, good. Let, it, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. I, I love this. It's not as if he's saying, well, if someone else want to redeem, wants to redeem you, that's great. It doesn't matter to me. What matters to Boaz is that Ruth is cared for. And so he says, there is someone who can redeem you and care for you and marry you and love you and serve you. And if he's the right man, may God do so. But if he's not willing, clearly God's hand is in this and I will do so. He just want, he wants what's best for Naomi, or excuse me, for Ruth. That's the kind of husband this man is going to be. And husbands, we should be taking notes. He just, he wants her to be cared for. 
Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it now be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures. We have no idea how much this six measures is. Six measures of what? It's a lot is what it is. Of barley and put it it, and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? How did, how did your first blind date go? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Here, Boaz, I think we can learn a few things from him. First, he is about protecting his integrity and even Ruth's integrity. It's dark. It's nighttime. No one's watching. And he says, no, 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 no. I see that God's hand is this. I'm not willing to get ahead of him. I want to protect my integrity. I want to protect Ruth. I want to protect your integrity. He's faithful to God's word, too. He knows what God would expect of him. He he knows that there is God's will and there is God's way of doing God's will. And he he does not take matters into his own hand. He, he, He understands this. This is important. I wrote it down. That we must always lay our circumstances next to Scripture. If you want to know God's will for your life, just place it aside Scripture. God's Word often does everything we need it to do to understand God's will for my life. And that's what he does. He he knows God's word and he knows that it would be wrong to cross a line with Ruth, even though no one would see it and no one would know. And then lastly, he takes care of not just Ruth, but Ruth's family. He, he, he fills her with enough to take home and even says, this is for your mother-in-law. And then it says, you must not, she must not go back empty-handed. Which should remind us of the end of chapter 1 where Naomi says, I've come back empty. I have nothing. And through Boaz, God makes sure Naomi is not left empty. And here's where we end. Naomi, for all her flaws and all her rashness, she has a strong word we need to take heart. She replied to Ruth, wait. Everybody just say, wait. Now say it like you mean it. Wait. Wait. My daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. She's literally saying in the Hebrew, it's literally just sit tight. Ruth, I know you're anxious. I know you're excited. I know that you really, really want God to do this because this would be great. But I need you to hang tight. Just wait. I'm reminded of Lamentations 3. 
Do you remember that verse that we quote all the time? His, his mercies are new every morning. That's a good one. But do you know what is said directly after that? This is what it says. Maybe you want to write this in the margins and meditate and maybe memorize it this week. Verse 25 specifically, 25 and 26. Actually, I want to start in verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good. It is good. It is a very good thing that one should wait quietly. So we all have things in our life that we long for God to do, do we not? Some of them are selfish. Some of them are honestly pure. We should pray them. We should seek the Lord for them. And, and in the middle of him saying yes or maybe or no, I hope that what we would do is we would wait and we would, get, we would ask ourselves the question, okay, God, what are you doing in me? What are you teaching me? And may we remind ourselves not to get ahead of God. I love what this commentary says, and we'll let it be the last word. It says, in her desire to see her own and Ruth's needs met, which really is not a bad thing, Naomi acted rashly, and it is easy to be like her. We, often in a greater, we are often in a greater hurry than God is. We need to learn that our God is trustworthy. His timing is perfect. His wisdom plans everything for our good. We have every reason to rest and wait in the Lord and to wait patiently for him. There is never a good reason to run ahead of God. So, what are the things... God is making you wait on. And what do you think maybe he's teaching you in those moments? Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that you want us to come before you and ask honestly and genuinely for your help to intercede for our life, for things that we long for, that we desire, that we would love to see you do. And Father, when you don't say yes, would you give us the grace to wait patiently? Would you give us the knowledge and the understanding to hear from you maybe what you're doing in our lives in the midst of the waiting. And Lord, we thank you above everything else that we can know for sure that you are trustworthy in the waiting. And we can know that because you sent your son, Jesus, to display your love for us and to remind us that you are for us and not against us. And so, as we wait, we look to you, Jesus, in the hope that you promise us. Pray these things. And everybody said...
Amen. Let's worship.